things that are objectifying are labeled as liberation. And just because I'm doing a preemptive strike and I'm going to objectify myself before somebody else can, it still causes harm mentally and emotionally. And so when there's a march for women and the person at the podium is the one who's profited off of objectifying herself the most of any celebrity in history, it's confusing to me. Welcome to the Vanessa Landino podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. So we have a really, really interesting guest this month. I'm so excited to share with you the book and the presence that is Anne-Marie Anderson. So Anne-Marie and I met, we figured it out that we've each known each other half our lives. And so there's a lot of history here. We met each other in some of the hardest, darkest times and had really healing talks through those times. And we went our separate ways and have become the women that we are. And we've really both done our work. And Anne-Marie, this old friend of mine, has written a new book. And the name of the book is Brain Sex, The Thinking Person's Sex Ed Book. And so when I got this little book in the mail, and it is a little book, okay? This is not a big book. This is a little book that is jam packed with information on how to heal and become more integrated sexually. So let me give you a little bit of info on who Anne-Marie is. She's a spokesperson and advocate for calling out commercial messages that claim to be beneficial but deliver harm. And you're going to hear a lot of this in the podcast. She calls, you know me, cow excrement on a lot of things. This is how she describes herself. Taking the politics and social discord out of the conversation allows for us to talk about sex from a human perspective. This book is simultaneously groundbreaking and common sense. Anne-Marie turns a very complex discussion into an opportunity for self-discovery and unity instead of polarization. The Brain Sex book really began as an offering of healing and answers the million-dollar question, how can we have better sex in a way that delivers? So without further ado, here is Anne-Marie Anderson. Thank you so much for doing this. It's good to see your face. It's so good to see you. I can't believe it. It's been a long time since we've seen each other. How long is it in person? Probably 20 years, something like that. At least. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's unreal. And I just have this, you know, kind of interstellar moments with you that I can go back to. And it seems like it just happened. (laughs) Yeah. Talking on the roof. (laughs) Exactly. Yep. And so it's been so great just to even follow because at first, of course, you know, I was like, oh, what's Vanessa doing? I'll follow her and see what, you know, for all of my one follower support. (laughs) And it's just been so awesome. Uh, First of all, just how you move the ball down the field so efficiently and yet it requires skin in the game you know for people to have to come and show up and bring their stuff and receive what you're saying and then it just it's just remarkable so it's super hopeful we all need it (laughs) so let's dive in a little bit and we'll just start here Anne marie it's good to be with you you too Um, we have 
how many decades of history? Let's see, 25 years. I've known you half my life. Oh. Yes. Yes. I've known you more than half my life. <laughs> um, okay. So for my listeners, um, yes, Anne-Marie and I have known each other for a long time, but she has just put out a really important book. And um, I recently got a copy in the mail and the envelope was thin. And I was like, oh, did she send me a copy? And I had no idea what the size of this book was, what the scope of the book was. And I opened it up and I tore through this. You can read this book in probably 30 minutes, really. But the scope of the content and the conversations that this book opens up, it's, well, it's never ending, but it's at least hours of your life, at least digesting what you're saying and the book is called Brain Sex, right? A thinking person's sex ed book. And there's just so much to say about this. But let's dive in, Anne-Marie. Tell us a little bit about the story. Because I love that you wrote, um, and I think we all do this. You know, I just wrote the book I needed. But you wrote on the first page of the book, I wrote the book I needed. So tell us a little bit about that. What's the story? How did this book come about? Yeah. So, um, I forgot what year it was, probably 2018, where, and I'm not sure exactly when the release dates were, but when bombshell came out and the morning show and, you know, working in corporate New York city, I had my own kind of hashtag me too stories yeah. and it really, uh, was jarring to, it felt like going back there when I was watching, you know, the portrayal of these other women. And obviously my story, everybody's story is a little bit different, but I decided to reach back to, uh, I would say four individuals that I needed to make amends with, uh, from that time. And just to say, Hey, you know what? This was not okay. I forgive you. I forgive me, but I did not have a voice. And I was shocked to receive responses from all but one of them. And the circumstance had haunted them as well for 20 years. Wow. And I didn't expect that. Um, I expected some, I don't know what I expected, but I definitely didn't expect that it would, it was something they were carrying as well. Right. And that was so encouraging. It made me think, gosh, you know, this is not a men versus women situation. And we, you know, often in really important issues, it's politicized or it's, you know, turned into a competition. Polarized. Yeah. Polarized, exactly. And the competitive nature destroys connection. And so I started thinking about, well, okay, if this is any gender, it doesn't matter. Where are we all first trained in this? So I traced my own experience back to the playground, what first grade catch and kiss, you know, truth or dare, uh, youth group, of course, <laughs> in the basement, spin the bottle. And all of that is transactional. And I remember distinctly the Girls, when I was caught and pinned up against the fence in first or second grade, you know, it was Glenn. I remember his name and the girls were so excited for me. And yet I felt scared. 
And so then I learned that a scary situation was a compliment and it became very confusing. So I just started kind of following the breadcrumb trail then to high school, partying, hookups were a social exchange, uh, college, more of the same. Uh, then you go to corporate and now it's illegal to behave the way that we've been rewarded for, you know, so just kind of following that until present day in my life being married for almost 20 years. So you really traced and let me know if this term isn't exactly resonating with you, but it's almost like you traced your sexual story. Yes. Like, and, and my sexual, my beliefs about sexual activity, uh, about myself, uh, my worth as a sexual being and as is it separate from my worth as a human being so this is huge i want you to say a little bit more um when you said i realized that these circumstances these experiences you had were transactional i think we all have a notion of what that word means but flesh that out for us what does that mean in your understanding of sexual experience between two people or more? What makes it transactional? I think uh, that's such a good question. And it's a question that really applies across all of all subjects when it has to do with relationships um, or experiences. So transactional sexual experiences and beliefs, it all starts kind of with our beliefs, really stops and starts in a finite amount of time. And it's to accomplish a goal that is really self-oriented. It has very little regard for the other person. And, you know, we kind of reduce that to consent. And it is not to learn more about ourselves as a whole human being. It is not to learn about that other person. And it's, it, transaction prevents connection emotionally. So it really is kind of in its own box. Yeah. It's two objects interacting, really. It's objectifying ourselves. Two objects interacting. And, you know, one of the things that I might reflect on as I look back at sexual experiences I had, whether they were, you know, fully sexual or just arousal oriented, you know, what we call messing around when you're a teenager, There's an unspoken agreement. Like I give you this, you give me that. We don't ever talk about it. It's not overt, it's covert. And very often I think it's probably driven by the culture that we're in and what's expected of you at that age, unless there's violation happening. And sometimes there is, and that's tragic. But if it's consensual, so often it seems like that's dictated by the culture. And that's what I found reading your books, I'm like, man, this is just such a beautiful reminder to be internal with this and really check in with all the parts of the self instead of the externalization of sex, which we're bombarded with all the time, that sends all these cultural messages. And it seems like, and we'll get to it, it's sort of at the end of your book, but this idea of contaminating us. I loved that metaphor. So this really came out of your own self-reflection. And what need did this book meet for you? Like you wrote the book that you needed. What did you need? That is an amazing question. I needed to hear sound 
information about my sexuality that integrated me as a whole person and also did not disregard, you know, the, my mental health and also did not objectify me or anyone else because, you know, men or any perpetrator, I've been assaulted by men and women. I mean, it's not exclusive. Mm -hmm. I learned about sexuality as a consumer and as a candy bar. (laughs) So, and you know, you're both. And, and I had not, I had been taught that my appearance was a power play. I had been taught that it was a way to maneuver in my career. It was all uh, almost strategic instead of relational, instead of my sexuality being something to really enhance and reinforce my values as a person, whether it was, I mean, it applies to every part of my life, my sexuality and my sexual beliefs and behavior is not outside of any other subject matter in my life. And so I needed that integrative information and that it was true because it so much information that we're taught sex education today is from the neck down, whether formal or informal. And the result is, as the book talks about the mental STDs that are contagious, they last a lifetime. And for some reason, as you've talked about the mental health industry, the information is sometimes feels like, you know, it's being, there's a gatekeeper to it or something where I wanted to get the information out in front. So proactively so Mm -hmm. that I could talk to my kids and I'm not using, um, I would say politicized messaging or uh, moralistic, you know, puritanical, fearful, shameful, nor am I using permissive language. Um, I'm so confused by how liberation is viewed. Things that are objectifying are labeled as liberation. And that's objectifying myself. And just because I'm doing a preemptive strike and I'm going to objectify myself before somebody else can, it still causes harm mentally and emotionally. And so when there's a march for women and the person at the podium is the one who's profited off of objectifying herself the most of any celebrity in history, it's confusing to me. That isn't empowerment. That's ignorance. And it's dangerous. Yes. You know, one of the things I'm taught that I'm hearing you talk about, Anne-Marie, is integration, Mm -hmm. the integration of sexuality with a healthy mentality, with healthy emotionality. Right. So there's this holistic assumption that we're making that the holistic being reintegrated, reunified with itself is sort of the optimal healthy being. And that is also my conceptualization of health. Um. What we're seeing right now, which is really interesting, is the re-disintegration of everything. Mm -hmm. So we're hearing things like, well, if you see yourself as an object and you want to objectify yourself, what's wrong with that? And I mean, common sense would tell me, well, the problem with that, which seems obvious to me, is that you are not an object. You are a being. 
So to objectify yourself is to become something that you are not and to function in such an intimate way, which is sexuality, from a false place mm-hmm. would just seem on its face to be problematic for holistic health. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and what's so amazing about the neurochemistry, oh my gosh, it was such a fun journey because objectifying, I wanted to see if objectifying yourself or someone else actually had a neurochem, if there was a neurochemical impact. And there is. So what is amazing is our brains are so good at protecting us. So when you're in a a hookup situation or you're objectifying yourself or someone else in any way, in several different contexts, which are included in the book, um, the, the brain releases a chemical guillotine, basically. And so to protect your heart from, you know, possible harm, or if it doesn't, you know, the other side of the brain is trying to detect emotional intimacy, physical safety. And if that comes back, oh, we don't know this person. We don't know if we're physically safe, or maybe we're physically safe, but it's a low bar. Then that chemical released protects our hearts. So that objectification isn't just an attitude it is actually a chemical reaction, right? It's fascinating. It is. And, you know, one of the losses that we all endure on the backside of any trauma is fragmentation. It's the fragment. Right. And so what's interesting is we're sort of living in a moment and we can stick with sexuality. Although I think this spans most realms of human experience where fragmentation, which is a coping mechanism mm-hmm. is now being normalized as a way of life, yes. particularly in sexuality. So you mentioned the term mental STDs. Tell us more about that. So this was part of the development of the book, Um, just my own experience with sexual assault and, you know, all of the hookup culture. And I mean, I just grew up kind of like everybody else (laughs) in this culture, Uh, whether you're, you grew up abstaining or not, or whatever your sexual decisions were, we were all exposed. And I want, there's a mental health crisis that we keep talking about. And the cultural, you know, message of the day is we want to support everybody's mental health, get mentally healthy, do whatever you need to do, go to a retreat, get a therapist, all of the things. And that felt very reactive to me. And so I wanted to trace that back in, as it has to do with sexuality, does our sexual practice and sexual beliefs impact our mental health? And does that start with neurochemistry? A hundred percent of the time. And it affects so many different areas that, you know, it's again, promoted, enhance your sex life by doing X, Y, or Z. And I researched those activities, those suggestions, whether, you know, to spice up a marriage or your whatever, kink or things like that. And the result of that is mental illness and often sexual dysfunction itself, because, you know, our ability to perform sexually starts in the brain. 
And we are hijacking and hotwiring these connections and then they will short circuit to where the very thing we're trying to enhance in our life becomes a dysfunction. And like you said, that becomes, you know, different compartments that becomes we're living as a stack of blocks, you know, instead of a whole being and it doesn't enhance anything. It really harms and it can cause depression, eating disorders, uh, sexual activity often when it's in an objectified situation causes eating disorders. That's an effort of control and also body dysmorphic disorder, um, identity confusion, gender dysmorphia, so many mental health issues, suicidal ideation, there's depression, there's nothing that isn't touched. Beautifully said. You know, I remember, I don't know if you've ever read the book by Naomi Wolf, Vagina. No. I have never been more proud to be a woman. Um, (laughs) I remember because, you know, I grew up with really mixed messages about sexuality myself. My mother was prudish, but there was also molestation going on in my house. And so it was very confusing. Um, So it's wrong to do it with that person, but it's right to do it here in this way. And that feels really violating. And then, you know, I lost my no, I lost my ability to say no. And so I would have sexual experiences growing up and was regretting them while I was doing them. And couldn't stop them. I mean, I was, it wasn't even like the morning after I'm like, I'm in the moment. Like, I don't want to be doing this. I hate this. And I lost my no. And it totally changed, of course, my brain chemistry and the neural pathways around sexual activity, which has taken a long time to unravel. I am not done with that work by any means, Um, nor necessarily do I feel like I need to be. This is a lifelong journey Mm -hmm. of self-discovery. You know, whether there's trauma or not, sexuality is like a treasure trove, Um, right? And so we can normalize the journey into the self and into the sexuality. But I remember reading the chapter in Vagina on sexual assault and sexual violence on both the vagina itself and the brain. And of course, this is for, I mean, speaking to women who have vaginas, but, you know, I think it's really great for men to know about vaginas. Well, and you're absolutely right. Thank you for I saying, mean, that. you know, you're welcome. Well, and when I talk about, you know, I'm talking more about like the experience of having. No, them. I hear you. I hear you. Right. So, but yes, men, please pay attention. Um, this yes. is important if you want to interact with one. Um, <laughs> assault, hello, sexual assault. Um, here we are laughing about this, but you know, the, the, the hardwiring of Mm -hmm. the body. And I don't know about this for men because I didn't read a book on penises, but I read a book on a vagina and the hardwiring in women from the, I'm going to butcher this, but from the, I think it's called the pudendal nerve all the way up our spine into our brainstem directly affects the production of dopamine in women. And I'm reading this. I'm like, this makes total sense. So that a woman's sense of self like mm. our actual ability to feel who we are and know who we are and have our identity is directly linked to how our vagina has been treated. Mm. And it is by us and by others. And it is an incredible, 
incredible chapter. And I remember reading this. I mean, the book is empowering. It's a beautiful book. She's a fantastic investigative journalist, and I love her as a person. I don't know her personally, but I love everything she does. Um, but it's a really healing book because there's so much shame about our own anatomy. There's so much wonder about our own anatomy. Mm -hmm. I loved what you wrote about the clitoris in this book. I was like, oh, and I remember, you know, reading Vagina, like she has graphs. I mean, she gets all into the anatomy and the nerve endings. It's a really, really robust study. Um you wrote, and I thought this sentence, this sentence is worth the book. Okay. You should all buy this book and you should read this book. And I have a lot more to say about that later, like the conversations that this book could spur. Um, it's profound, but you wrote this on page seven labels. What's in a name? And you wrote label fatigue is a thing and it devalues each of us. I'm just going to read from the book. Another mentally damaging myth is that if we label ourselves to death, we'll belong. We'll find, quote, our people, end quote. We'll be special. We'll be seen. We'll be found, known, safe, respected, valued, protected, maybe even loved. No label can do all of that. That is our work. And then this sentence. And I wrote, brilliant. Each label creates a smaller box not more belonging. Mm. I want you to just talk now. Tell us about this. Tell us about what brought you to this and say more. This is profound and so important in this moment in our culture. Thank you so much. Um, I did want to just distill this down to important statements and I watched specifically, especially watching, we have two teenagers and watching them and walking with them. They're such honest people, really, truly. And navigating these labels, that it was frenetic uh, for them. And it is incredibly confusing, back to confusion where trying to find, you know, if specifically with sexuality, there are, you know, so many different labels and more every day. Yes. And I can choose, uh, let's see, I think the last time I checked, I could choose 10 at least. And there are more than a hundred out there right now that to do with sexuality alone. I'm also a woman. I'm a wife. I'm 50. I'm color my hair. I mean, you know, all the things. And so I just watched my kids have endless amounts of labels being created every day. They had to choose them. There's a tremendous pressure to label yourself and then find the other kids that are labeled and then, however, this much of it was based on arousal and, you know, I'm going to be aroused by five different things by five o'clock this evening. So I have to choose, you know, and then if the next day your label changed, you're, you abandoned your other people. And so then there was this additional social pressure. Don't abandon your people. 
but you have 10 different groups of people. Are you more that group or more this group? And I just watched the, the effects, the result was not, it was the opposite of belonging. It was insecurity, anxiety through the roof, incredible judgment. Uh, This was supposed to create a space for everyone. You do you, you know, Uh, here is a group for everyone. There's a flag for everyone. There's, and unfortunately it did. And it'd be interesting to further study, you know, belonging for oppressed groups. However, what I saw in my children and their friends was depression, isolation, confusion. No one trusted anyone. Uh, loyalty, no. Just the destruction of even that concept, let alone emotional intimacy, authenticity, honesty. Uh, there was backbiting. There was gossip went through the roof uh, as if it could get any higher with teenagers, but it just absolutely resulted in the opposite of what it promised. And I guess that is the main message, you know, do your own research, discover what the real impact is to you if by engaging in any beliefs or behavior. Beautifully said. And spoken by a mom of teenagers, and I'm going to say more about that later. You know, I don't work with many teenagers, but I have a few in session. And one of the things that I've learned from working with teenagers therapeutically is exactly what you are detailing is the case. The more labels, the way my therapist says it, and I love the way he said this, the way that he um, described it was the more labels you put in front of a person, the further away you get from the actual person. (laughs) And it's beautiful. It's just right. And we didn't grow up like this. I mean, we didn't, I don't know what labels were important to us then, but nowadays, yeah, there are labels for everything. And what I've worked with when it becomes appropriate with teenagers and sexuality, because what I'm seeing is that their labels are very intellectual. They're picking the labels that seem true for them, but also there is that social component where they need to be in the in-group and they need to be socially accepted by the labels that they choose. And it is my observation, you can speak to this as a mom and as a much closer observer of teenage culture at this time, Anne-Marie, but it's my observation that heterosexual is like the worst label you could choose. It's you you almost can't own that anymore. There are so many other options. And in order to be socially accepted, there are so many other um, labels that teenagers are taking on. And what I've talked to them about around their sexuality is, listen, some of this is autonomic. You can't intellectualize yourself into an arousal response. Your body being free, being what it is, will respond in certain environments that is autonomic. In other words, I can't make myself attracted to the same sex because that's socially acceptable. I can't make myself attracted to the other sex if I really wanted to be that way. Now, this is what your book is about. It's about the neurological connection between the brain and sexuality. But my 
fear with teenagers these days is that in order to have the right label to be accepted socially in the way that they perceive they want to be, they're now defining themselves intellectually as far as their sexuality goes. And it's really divorced from the body. It's a social construct. The body is when I was 15 years old, my body is what wanted to get me closer to the boys. Like my, it wasn't, you know, oh, I need to be a demisexual or I need to be, I forget what the name of it is when you're attracted to people who are intelligent. I've always been that person. Apiosexual. Right? I know just because oh, I am. Course, this is your book. Right? <laughs> Thanks. Like, that's, that's my flag for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, there's a flag. I'm going to fly it above my house. Yeah. Um, yeah. Love Jared's brain. Um, so that was the danger that I was seeing is there was a fragmentation, right? Mm -hmm. Between the intellectualized concept of the sexual self and the body. And I'm like, you can't make yourself have a rush of blood to your genitals <laughs> in the face of one thing or another, because it's socially acceptable or not. You're going to feel it autonomically. What are your thoughts? Um, I think that's a chicken and an egg situation almost just yeah. because, uh, I also see the labels generated by arousal, like from whatever you're aroused by, that's your identity. And arousal is, like you said, just an autonomic response. It means your hormones are working. Good job. It does not mean hang your hat on what you're aroused by in any given moment. Right. And yeah. so, yeah because then you're going to have to switch the hat rack, you know? And so it gets really confusing. At least for me, I remember, like you said, growing up, I didn't try to label myself, but I, you know, definitely had times in high school and college where, you know, I was absolutely objectified by myself. I took that baton, you know, going from being abused to becoming my own abuser. And, I then really transacted and it got to a point where I, you know, I was told and believed and I owned that script. I started writing it for myself that I was a sexual being that if somebody were aroused by me, somehow I was now obligated to satisfy that. And it, I really you know, was not very discerning. <laughs> and so arousal for me, I think it's kind of like a muscle memory. It must be, I would love to study that, but I became aroused, you know, in different situations that were completely not aligned with my values. So in the book, I talk about how we make goals, right? For business, for school, for family life for anything, school, grades. So we should do the same with our sexuality and our, you know, beliefs and behavior. So if I'm aroused by, you know, somebody, well, I've been married for 20 years. I probably, you know, if I act on that, that's not in alignment with my values. Mm -hmm. So yes, great. I'm aroused by something that just means Thank goodness at 50 stuff, stuff is working. Yes. So I'm like, yay, congratulations. You're a healthy human. Right. Uh, at the same time, we are in charge of choosing 
our values, which we're not trained in how to even identify them, let alone, at, you know, and that comes from a lot of what you do is asking the questions that we have to sit with ourselves. The answer is nowhere but inside ourselves. And yes, we have to do our own research. And yet TikTok is not research. Uh, this passive consumption. Say it louder. Yeah. <laughs> but passive <laughs> consumption of information isn't research. That's being told who you are. Okay. So I'm going to say this now because I was going to say it later, but I'm going to say it now. Let me jump in. Yeah. For all parents listening to this, I want you to get this book. I want you to talk about this book with your teenagers. And I want you to sit down and listen to this podcast with your teenagers. And I just want to repeat very clearly what Anne-Marie just said. The passive consumption of information is not research. These areas of our humanity are too important and vital to be determined by TikTok videos. Okay. So I just want to, I was going to save this for later, but this is the moment. I'm putting this out there now. If you are a parent and you have a teenage child, and you can say more about this, Anne Marie, I read this book and I thought, first of all, everybody should read this book. Again, this is not a tone, it is a readable book. I love what you said. You distilled it down. Okay. I wish I had your gift. I am the other way, too verbose, too many words. This is distilled. It packs a punch. There is more information and idea on every page than you will know what to do with. But every teenager today needs to read this book. They need to sit down with their parents, everybody having read the book, and talk about it if their family life can uphold this kind of conversation. This is great material. For and why teenagers? Because that is where burgeoning sexuality takes place. This is where a lot of our patterns get established. And this is an important stopping point to stop life, stop the busyness, and talk. I love what you're saying about values and goals. We do this for every other part of life. Why wouldn't we do this for sexuality? It is actually so important, even for preteens, um, to start the conversation with how do you determine your values? And as parents, you know, often when you go to dog training class, it's really owner training class. So all of the parenting classes I've been to are not about the children, obviously. And so our children are watching, as we all no, we intellectualize that. However, it's so amazing to sit down and have that values conversation first, values and goals. And I've invited our kids to call us out when we are not aligned. Like when, you know, Ryan and I are living in a way and say our fitness part, I refuse to exercise. I don't know what my problem is anyway. So then I am a total, you know, I'm like, I have no credibility, but you need to exercise. So I'm like, you know, so I'm like, I am not acting in my values. Right. I know that. Yeah. So just get a sense of humor about the fact that, you know, this is a practice just like, you know, we talk about yoga practice our sexual, the sexuality, let me say that again. <laughs> our sexuality is a practice, just like 
anything else and creating and forming, identifying our values is also a practice. So if I ingest information or consume information passively, say that whether it has to do with politics or cooking or anything else, if I have a visceral reaction, a physical reaction to that, whether it's offense or excitement or anything, I can reflect and say, does that align with my values? Am I offended by that because I'm scared of something else? Am I just judging something? I want to get super good at being uncomfortable with information I hear, determining why I'm uncomfortable, own my part of it, my crap, and then decide what part of that is aligned with me. And also, I would encourage parents to talk to their preteens and teens about imagine yourself five years from now. I know that's an annoying adult conversation with you people, but really truly do. And then decide just like you plan like crazy for getting into college. It's an obsession. It's worse than like pageant moms. So be that enthusiastic about where you want your sexuality and your sexual life to be 10 years from now, because what you do now will affect whether or not you can even get an erection with your wife or your husband. And you were talking about the clitoris, the penis, and all of its wonder. It's so important. Yes. And there, and so sacred. And like, this is really funny to I'm my son's gonna die but anyway (laughs) it's like oh my gosh my mom just said the penis is sacred anyway so it's so I love what you said about the vagina and I would absolutely it would be amazing if it weren't the same uh because we're always trying to divide and it really it's amazing to me because there is so there are so many nerve endings in all of it for a reason because like you said it communicates with us and that is so wonderful and i think that even the language we use you know about our genitals oh you're such a d i know this is a clean podcast so mm-hmm. or i know yeah. or you're a p or you're and that's derogatory, and yet then it's worshipped at the same time. So this, these, the language is conflicting. Yes. So we behave in one way, we speak in one way, the result is completely not what it was said. And so also in the book, I talk about if something is popular, make sure there's not profit behind it. Because if there is, you're being played. That's right. And so don't, you know, wellness isn't very profitable. So just check the information and make sure that it actually results in when you engage in your sexuality, your sexual thoughts, your sexual behavior, how do you feel afterwards? What do you do afterwards? Does that, just like you were saying, in the middle of sex, are you not wanting to be there? Red flag. (laughs) And yet when you lose your no, it's freeze response. 
second guessing, triple guessing, and then just check out. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so much of that is so important and people can decide in advance. And I will tell you that if I had had that conversation in a proactively, the assault situations that I would have, that I was in, I would have handled completely differently. Sure. Pre, during, and post. You know, I was, you know, you and I probably had this conversation at some point in our relationship, but I was raised, um, you know, and this is sort of the intro of the toolbox, but you know, that sex would always be slow and romantic and there'd be rose petals dripping from chandeliers, you know, like it was just this beautiful, glorious, you know, a woman opens herself like a flower, you know, it's just, and there's beauty in that. There's a reason why those, you know, tropes and stereotypes exist. However, the reality of sex is very different. There are two people in the story, not just my mother's fantasy. And, and that was supposed to be, and I think it was her sexual fantasy. It was her sexual story. Um, we really weren't raised to develop our own. Um, we weren't, we didn't talk about it. And so it was sort of like, there's this beautiful thing that you can't touch until yeah. you're older. And then when you're older, it's going to be beautiful. And so the, the rawness and the awkwardness of sex was never discussed. And I remember sitting in graduate school and my professor, Michael Christian was lecturing. I don't even remember what he was lecturing on. I don't remember what the class was, but I remember he said distinctly, and this is a strong statement, but he said, parents who neglect to give their children a sexual education, this is a form of parental neglect and could even be categorized as sexual abuse. I completely agree basically setting them up for one of the most powerful realms of human experience with no information whatsoever. Yep. Sorry. So I do want to say just super quick, um, back to heterosexuality being the bad thing. There's also many different versions of heterosexuality. So you can, what is it? Super straight, straight. I don't know. There's lots. And yet I don't experience uh, heterosexuality as being, you know, it it being polarized against like the cisgender, et cetera. And I think that's just because I'm in this lived experience uh, with my teenagers. And also I just know that that's a political view It is. And And why I talked about arousal the way I did is because I've worked with teenagers who feel pressured to be something other than heterosexual. Of course. And I was pressured in college. I went to the health exam at the very questionable clinic on campus. And even back then, the nurse's assistant or whoever was really pushing an agenda And I won't say what it is because honestly, I don't think it matters. Mm -hmm. Any agenda that's pushing us to either vilify ourselves for our sexual orientation or someone else isn't something to pay attention to. That's simply not a credible train of thought. And it results, yeah, and it results in anxiety, anger, offense all the things that probably don't result in the values that you want to live by. So what I love is it kind of just 
you know, if we start with that baseline, it really eliminates the tail wagging the dog and chasing all the butterflies. How do, how do parents engage, for example, teens, preteens even, yeah. um, in conversations to establish values and goals around something that they may have limited knowledge on and certainly limited experience at that point. Although most kids nowadays, by the time they're preteens have seen porn. Um, and that's a whole other conversation we can get to, yeah. but how would you do that? How would you advise parents, parents who are listening, parents who are going to hear this podcast? How do you open up that conversation with like a 12 year old or right. a 14 year old who's pretty innocent? How does that start? Um, yeah, so we started talking about pornography specifically and sexuality probably when they were six, five yeah. or six, um, obviously in age appropriate ways. So there are amazing resources, some of which I list in the back of the book. And it was wonderful because I, I would encourage parents to start with themselves Instead of going at it like, oh gosh, you know, they're kind of a person and now I have to talk about sex and all of this information is swirling around. It's overwhelming to navigate. And so I would encourage parents to simplify things a lot and remember their journey as a sexual being, where they are now sexually and go through that process themselves first and say, you know, is my sex life in alignment with the values that I want? How would I tweak anything to bring that back into alignment? Do I need to do any research? Am I aware of my own anatomy? Which it's crazy because I found out a lot that I didn't know <laughs> and how it works, you know, sexually with somebody else's body and somebody else's mind and and do I reduce my sexual experiences even in you know long-term monogamy or marriage to transaction I've spoken to so many women that don't know how to talk to their teenagers especially teenage girls about pleasure because they are transactional with their partners and they resent their partners but they don't know where to begin with themselves. So I would really just encourage parents, have a blast, like get awkward. Well, which is just being honest mm -hmm. and start there so that you build your own vocabulary. The, because teenagers are, they have radar. And if you don't believe what you're saying, you're done for all the parents out there that are listening to this and you're squirming in your cars because you're uncomfortable, please squirm, please be uncomfortable. And also please take Anne-Marie's advice. Children need adult interaction around this entire realm. This cannot be something we ignore and then you'll figure it out when you get married or you figure it out when you're 19. Uh-uh. That cannot or, be- Or 13. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, I also want to encourage parents um, to say the word pornography. There's a great resource in the back of the book called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. And it is 
the best resource. Um, parents, please don't think you have to know what you're talking about, even for yourself. The best modeling in the world for our teenagers has been, I have no idea. And being totally fine with that. I don't know how you navigate all of the things you navigate at school. I don't tell me about that. Yeah. It's, and the it's word not integrity. Yeah. It's not teaching. It's being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And then it's so fun because then they can see, you know, my conversation, not conversation. We don't have conversations, but like I talk about just, you know, preserving that playfulness um, in my marriage relationship regarding sexuality. And I mean, it truly doesn't die when you get married. That's the other misnomer. It really is a crescendo. And I'm not kidding. I'm not talking about your mom's fan fantasy because I don't wear a negligee, but I have realized that the more honest I am about what I don't even know about myself and how I feel or my own values sexually and how it works even physically sometimes has given Ryan and I, it's almost like just this playfulness yeah, and presence. I'm able to be present. It really builds trust and trust releases the most powerful aphrodisiac chemicals yeah. in the world. You know, there's a book that I love. Maybe you've read it or heard of it. It's called She Comes First. No. I, I think his his name is, I, we would say it, Ian. I actually think it may be pronounced Ian, but his last name is Kerner. And he wrote this book, She Comes First. And it is a guide on how to properly give oral sex to a woman. Okay. And so I'm reading this book. And, you know, I'm a therapist, so I'm reading everything I can get my hands on, but I figure, okay, this will come in handy. And it has, but as I'm reading this book as a woman, I'm finding wow. myself going, yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's how you do that. That is what that needs. That's what this part of the anatomy needs. And I'm sort of celebrating this, but the front half of the book, the book is divided into two parts. The front half of the book is how to prepare a woman for oral sex and orgasm. And the entire, wow. no pun intended, thrust of that part of the book is safety. Yeah. She has to be safe. And so what you're talking about right now, creating a, again, this is what this book is about, as I understand it. Before you even take off your clothes, it's here. It's creating a mindset and a space for your brain as it is with the questions it has, the shame it has the preferences it has, the beliefs it has to come into the interaction, not the transaction, the interaction and be safe. And yes. that seems to be the way you describe it. Like this is foreplay. This is the beginning of everything. Yeah. Yes. And I will say it's also so powerful that this is the same for men. Yes. And I had no idea that ridiculous and terrifying messages men get about size matters and all of this posturing and misinformation about even relationships in general with women or their partners is so damaging. And so to really build trust yes. with Ryan, okay. 
is a huge deal because then the second guessing or is she enjoying herself or all of those things affect our mental health as well and our ability to even enjoy the process. You know, it's so funny. I, Jared and I got married. We both have our own histories and our own stories. And as I was reading this book, you know, the day that we're recording this, we have a date night tonight. I was like, I'm bringing this book on date night. I can't wait to dive into some of these things. We've never had this conversation, Anne-Marie. We came together with love and desire and yet not explicit conversation around values and goals. And that was the page that I thought, okay, that's where we're going to start. Um, that's where we're going to start. And that's where I think, you know, again, this book, one page leads to the other. You could talk about this for hours and days and years, um, but incredible content. So let's talk a little bit about the contaminants. Mm-hmm. I love this metaphor. I love the image in the book. It's like hazardous. And what you wrote about purity, you know, a lot of people listening to this were raised in what was called the purity culture or the purity movement. And your take on this is so fresh. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I, you know, didn't grow up in like a puritanical <laughs> anything. Right. And yet, um, I had the desire for sexuality to mean something. And so again, there were conflicting, confusing. And if we approach sexuality from morality, a moralistic puritanical perspective, it's, it's a disconnect. Like you were saying, it's um, intellectualizing things. And even, you know, regardless like texts of faith or any background, it really does not address the value of us and the sexuality. And so what was so wonderful about, cause that all of that bothered me. It came with a lot of shame, judgment, you know, kind of judged if you do, judged if you don't, judged if you did, <laughs> judged, judged if you will. <laughs> judged and, if you didn't. I mean, I had exactly, I mean, virgins later on in life and had lots of shame about that just tons. Right. And so, and what's the right time and who's the right person. And it just, oh my goodness, where do you go from there? Right. There's no direction for adults or kids or anyone. And so it was so wonderful because I remember on my, when I first started my faith journey, I was like, dang it. I knew it meant something, you know, and yet fell flat, right? When I'm trying to talk to my kids and trying to empower myself and I am not, you know, I don't want, I'm not down with the patriarchy or down with the feminists. I'm just wanting to know what is the most healthy way for me to believe, think and behave and treat others around sexuality. And so it was the purity aspect. I started looking up the definition And it really, I loved the communication definition where, you know, is there static in the line? You know, I mean, back in the old days with the phones, you know, you could have static or there's a clear communication and neurochemically, every time you have a sexual experience, even if it's just holding hands, because that's an erogenous zone, your brain hits the record button. 
Of course it does. Your brain's like, this is good. I want to remember this. You know, this is part of our story. This is amazing. These are precious, like we talked about, sacred things. And so when you have all those recordings and some of them laced with, you know, unsafety or uh, unhealthy messages, objectification, et cetera, when then you try to move on to a healthier sexuality with anybody, especially yourself, it is noisy. And there's a lot of static and, you know, like the contamination, I also looked it up with water and contamination versus pure water. You don't judge the water for being contaminated. (laughs) You just wouldn't drink it and you wouldn't give it to your friends and, or your dog. And so it just was such a wonderfully objective and useful way of, of seeing it. And that's truly how it plays out neurochemically. And that's why when they talk about hookup sex being, you know, even so many of the websites that talk about birth control methods, Uh, One of the websites shocked me because they talked about, okay, here's the birth control to use that's ready to go, you know, party ready. Here's another birth control that's for a short-term relationship that takes a little more planning. Here's the birth control for, you know, long-term monogamy. And to approach it that way is so unhealthy. Don't prepare for ready to party sexuality that causes mental illness. That is not being prepared. That's not safe sex. Right. That is very unsafe sex mentally and emotionally. And I, you know, so just really calling out this language um, was really important to me. And I even just read an article in Very Well Mind the other day that talked about does hookup sex cause mental illness? Yes, it does. Listed depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, body dysmorphic disorder, erectile dysfunction, orgasm dysfunction. And then at the bottom, it said, but if you enjoy it, go ahead. Yeah. It was so frustrating because it was so wonderful until that last disclaimer. Right. And, you know, that's part of what I think you described beautifully before, that you have goals and values around your own sexuality and you referenced your own marriage that, yeah, I might feel aroused or attracted to someone, but because I value my marriage and I have a goal of whatever yours and Ryan's goals are, you know, acting out on that arousal may not be congruent with the goals and the values that I've set. And in that vein, I mean, just that very question. Okay, if this causes mental illness, if it is positively correlated to mental and emotional distress, is that in keeping with your values for your life and your goals for yourself as an individual? Therefore, is this behavior you want to participate in? Further, further, we're sort of living in an era where no one is coming up against the word pleasure and saying very clearly, at least who has a microphone, but here we are with a microphone. Just because something is pleasurable does not make it healthy. Like 
those are not synonymous on any level. Just because something is pleasurable, it is not healthy. And that's a message that we need to communicate, I think, to burgeoning preteens and teens or in your family, I love this, six-year-olds, about life in general and certainly sex, right? Just be, and We know this about food. Just because something is enjoyable or tastes good, that has nothing to do with whether or not it's healthy. Like it's literally not connected. It's just not related. It could be one or the other. And that is likely, I think, a fair statement to say, I've not thought this through, but you have. Perhaps that's a fair statement to say about sexuality. Yes, I would totally agree with that. And not only pleasure, but just because it uh, maybe delivers you from discomfort doesn't mean it's healthy. Just because it means you're with someone that you wish didn't break up with you and you hook up again for that night, it do- just like the labels, it doesn't deliver the belonging. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine is just obsessed with training thought. She's amazing at it. I had never approached it quite so intentionally until I after I know. So she's an educator. What I've realized, the most important thing to education for it to even exist in a healthy way is safety as well. You know, my kids can't be in fight or flight and learn anything. And facts and figures have become really the easy part. Um, There's so much distraction and there are so many ways that they want to distract themselves from discomfort. And what I have found to intertwine with our sexuality and our ability to be aroused and while we're safe, because arousal can come in unsafe circumstances if we have a trauma background. So, or pornography and just if we've wired our brain that way. So just because arousal comes doesn't mean follow it, doesn't mean it's healthy. Also, just because it delivers you from discomfort, don't follow that either. That leads to addiction. And what has been so amazing in my own life is to begin trusting myself to move through discomfort and be fine. Discomfort has never taken anyone out. I have never met anyone who spontaneously combusted because they were in pain. And that felt revolutionary for some reason. (laughs) Well, sure, because it's empowering. It gives your mind power over the sensations that you're experiencing in the moment. Otherwise, we're either infants or brute beasts. I mean, it's transcendent. This is to mature to be able to observe ourselves in discomfort and to ask ourselves, maybe what does that mean for me? Just because I'm in discomfort now, it doesn't mean I'm gonna be in discomfort forever. And just because I'm in discomfort in this moment, doesn't mean I'm doing anything wrong. Discomfort is part of life. Discomfort is part of life. And that's what your toolbox and your podcast, because you know, when I started researching this and then started listening to your podcast, I realized for discomfort, I had like one rusty screwdriver that I used for everything. I'm like, nope. Oh, darn. You know, and I really needed like a wrench, a plier, uh, so many things. (laughs) I mean, but I was so stubborn because I, I didn't know to develop how to train my mind, train myself to develop 
tools to handle discomfort. And Ryan and I quit drinking any alcohol three years ago to model for our kids how to socialize while sober because, and then it was pretty humbling because we realized, oh, then we would probably hang out with one or two of the people that we're hanging out with now. And we've really, I mean, it's been a a shift and it was so fun. And so, you know, we've just realized like that that's, we can handle our discomfort without escaping and we can really build a life we don't want to escape from at the end of the day, at the end of the week. I remember on one of your podcasts, you know, I kept thinking of my vacations as lily pads or like I was playing hot lava, you know, like everything in life is hot lava, but I'm going to just jump from one vacation to the next. And I remember in one of your podcasts, you're like, if you find yourself, you know, waiting for the next vacation, I'm like, oh my gosh. And I find that sexually people wait until that next pleasure to escape. And I just know that we can be a lot more creative in how we celebrate in how we handle our discomfort and how we really move through a day. It really feels like a superpower. It really does. And you know, what you're saying is both elevating and humbling at the same time, which is this idea that to be, and I'm using this language, Mm self-controlled and intentional and principled as you move throughout a 24 hour period is something to be celebrated. And it certainly is. Um, all right, let's wind down here. There are so many more. I mean, I have paid like a page of things in front of me um, that I want to ask you about, but I think I might just wait until I come visit you. Um, okay. <laughs> as far as the book goes, I want to say this again. Okay. Um, everyone needs to read this book because there is no one I can think of or know of who would not benefit from some concept or some words you've written on one page of this very succinct, powerful, pack-a-punch little book. It is a powerful book. Like I said, it would probably take you probably less than an hour to read it, but the hours and days and years of healing and conversation that could come from this book are endless, and that is the power of it. It leaves so much room for discussion and for you to discover who you are. It just gives you some really powerful knowledge on which to build and rebuild and reestablish a healthy sexuality. So everyone get Brain Sex, a thinking person sex ed book. Anne-Marie, where can they buy it? Okay, so right now I'm distributing it through a company called Blurb because then I can they I can kind of pass on my discount And with that, I donate the books to schools. So I buy back uh, that way. And you can go to the link on my Instagram. It's just brain sex book. And you can click on that. You can also, you know, send me an email, Anderson at me.com. Okay. So a couple of ways to get in touch with you. The Instagram account is brain sex book on Instagram. And then from there, people can find your book and they can find messages about this. This is fantastic. And in this moment in our culture, I can't imagine a more needed, necessary conversation starter than this powerful book you have written. So thank you. Thank you so much.
Absolutely. It's awesome to be with you. You too. Look forward to seeing where this goes for you. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Well, that'll wrap it up. I hope that you got as much out of that as I did. She is a force and she is already in demand. Please follow her on Instagram. I think it's the Brain Sex Book. And if you'd like to follow me, you know where to find me, Vanessa the Therapist. And remember, your soul work is to discover who you truly are and learn how to love that human being. Yes, my friends, that involves your sexual self. Till next time, this podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino and you just listened to the Vanessa Londino podcast.